Are you racist enough for Jewish funding? Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Let's let's call let's call Soros, Yuan. Yeah. Can you call Soros and ask him for money? Well, they're the good they're the good Jews and the bad Jews. He's one of the bad ones. <laughs> He's not oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I thought you all were good. Okay. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, you you know there was a there was a Jew um, who got stranded on an island, and he was there for many years. And uh, when they finally came to rescue him, they discovered that he'd built two synagogues. I said, well, why did you build two synagogues? I said, well, in this one, I would pray. And in that one, I would never go there. The Ark of the Moral Universe is Nathan Kofnes, thank you for joining the Manifest podcast. We, we can start with like what would what would be like the first the first intellectual topic that you found relevant. So I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the world headquarters of political correctness, and I went to uh, uh, elementary, middle, and high school at uh, something called Ethical Culture, which was founded by Felix Adler, who was a Reform rabbi who also played a, was a prominent figure in the development of political correctness. And a big part of the curriculum was about racism and what white people had done and all that. So I didn't really question that for the first several years of my life. Children don't really question things. Then maybe when I was 15, I started noticing the phenomena that were difficult to explain according to the racism theory. You know, people that I knew that grew up, as far as I could tell, under very similar conditions, tended to have slightly different averages and patterns in their behavior and uh, that sort of thing. But I assumed I must be confused. And certainly the idea that there are differences between these groups is just impossible because there hasn't been enough time for evolution to create differences which is just some idea that I repeated with, without having any understanding of what I was saying. When I was 17 years old, I started taking uh, classes uh, as a visiting high school student at Columbia University, which is where I eventually went to uh, get my BA. And I took an anthropology class on uh, the evolution of human behavior. And the professor mentioned that Australian Aborigines have a Broadman's Area 17 that's something like uh, 25 to 50% larger than in uh, the European population. And he said that the, this is the area of the brain that's responsible for, some, for vision. So he said, does that mean there's less room for something else? I don't know. That's what he said. But as soon as he said that, it occurred to me that, okay, I've been lied to. It was a very shocking experience. You know, part of my identity was, you know, these beliefs that had, that had been imprinted on me about racism is responsible for all disparities. Yeah, it was, it was all, it was all a lie. And I became absolutely obsessed with intelligence research and race differences. And I just, I couldn't stop talking about it 
just to every person I met, I would explain I would explain these things. And even when I had college interviews, I told the college interview interviewers about race differences. So I was interviewed by Harvard, for example, and I started <laughs> telling them about race differences. Sorry, sorry, I, sorry, yeah. sorry for being rude. <laughs> I, I did not go to Harvard. Uh, but, but anyway, Columbia didn't have interviews, so that wasn't that wasn't a problem there. Amazing. So I've learned to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I can order a cup of coffee without telling them <laughs> about race differences. But I, at the time, I guess I assumed I'd just keep going with this and I'd uh, major in anthropology or um, psychology. But I didn't really fit into that, that community and I became interested in more methodological issues. My interest in science really was about in areas where there are questions of methodology and uh, and also connected with uh, ethical and social issues. So uh, philosophy is a better field to uh, to approach those questions than mm. uh, anthropology. Nathan, could you give us plebs sort of a rundown? Because I think many people sort of broach this topic from maybe they've heard of bell curve and uh, maybe the work of Charles Murray or, or, or uh, Professor Flynn. But could you give us a slight intro to, to the sort of corpus of, of what's happened with this since maybe the 90s or something, or, or just a slight intro to why this is... I mean, the, 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 the controversy is sort of apparent in itself because it's sort of uh, very much a challenge to the, 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 the arts or, or the modern conception of the world in the West. But could you give us a slight intro to where's this sort of topic been for the last 30 years or, or, or something like that? Uh, well, to start at the beginning uh, with the science of intelligence testing... Mm -hmm. So intelligence is a very difficult to define concept. You know, people value different kinds of cognitive abilities. People disagree to some extent about who's intelligent, who's not intelligent. So intelligence research, though, is based on one big discovery, which is that if you give people a battery of tests, tests of different specific abilities, so their ability to do analogies, their ability to remember numbers and repeat them in reverse order, or their ability to complete a pattern if you give them shape, uh, different shapes and an option to complete the pattern. These are all completely different skills, but it turns out that they're very highly correlated with each other. So there's a positive correlation between all cognitive abilities. Uh, so if you're good at doing analogies and you have a, a large vocabulary uh, and so on, you'll also be better at remembering digits and you'll be better at solving uh, certain kinds of math problems and vice versa. Now, people, of course, can be much better at one thing or the other, but there is the positive correlation. And when you uh, analyze these data statistically, you can find uh, what's called the uh, the underlying factor, which is a theoretical entity, which explains variation among individuals on, on these tests. So the underlying factor, which is approximated by your IQ score, is the 
best predictor of your performance on a variety of cognitive tests. So we call this IQ, or we could call it general intelligence, but in order to speak about this thing called IQ, you don't need to define intelligence. You don't need to call it general intelligence intelligence. You could say that's not what you care about. That's not what you value. That's not what you think about when you think about intelligence. You only think about you know your ability to do calculus. That's the only thing that matters, one could say. One could say that, and that's just a question of how you want to define the word. But there is this statistical phenomenon of the underlying factor, which corresponds to IQ, and IQ turns out to be the best predictor of many social outcomes that people care about, like uh, socio, like uh, educational attainment and uh, what kind of job you have, the chance that you're going to commit crimes. IQ is better at predicting that than basically any other single variable known to uh, social science. Now, races differ substantially in their IQ. And the, the ranking is Jews, East Asians have the highest IQ. Europeans, uh, is, uh, the British IQ is theoretically defined as 100 with standard deviation 15. And uh, African Americans, who are about 25% European, have IQs of about 85 on average. So one standard deviation below whites. Everything that I've said up till now is not particularly controversial among people who work in this area. So the controversy then is the cause for the deviation. Right. The controversy is what causes these race differences in, in IQ. The standard politically correct explanation is that it's white racism. Mm. Now there are a lot of problems with the right, the white racism theory. So white racists don't like Jews or Asians, but why do Jews and Asians have higher IQs if the racist white man has arranged things so that the races he doesn't like would score worse? So that's very curious. Um, and you could say that it's oppression or discrimination, but I mean, Jews were discriminated against and uh, didn't seem to affect their IQ. So that's that's strange. Why doesn't it work for Jews? I mean, uh, Asians also were discriminated against and went through non-ideal circumstances, but they get higher, East Asians get higher IQs than whites. So with all the, the politically correct explanations for race differences, there are some obvious problems which are never, never explained, never answered. Ruft me the mikrebe fischel, ruft me the mikrebe fischel. Gmachat ihr a Fenster la Benkele a Tischel. Hanst und singt mein Segele, schneiden dick die Breitlech, schneiden dick die Breitlech, ba putzen wird doch uns 
There's also the the sort of uh, uh, idea of of culture or education uh, and the sort of um, I, I think it was coined by by uh, Charles Murray and and his co-author uh, the Flynn effect after Professor Flynn. Could you speak to that and this sort of fallout of that discussion? So there is a uh, phenomenon of a slow rise in IQ scores over the 20th century. So as soon as we started measuring IQ scores, people started getting better. Now, why this happened? So it was something like three points a decade for several decades. So quite over time, is quite massive difference. So if you would, theoretically, if you would administer a modern IQ test to Abraham Lincoln, or just whatever smart person you can think of from way back when, he would get a very low score, even though he was very intelligent. So this is the main finding that the environmentalists hang their hats on. Well, the Flynn effect shows that it's all cultural. And now the Flynn effect is a very interesting thing and not very, not completely understood. Probably a very small amount of the Flynn effect is due to better nutrition, better uh, physical environment for development. And most of it, though, is due to uh, increased the test-taking sophistication or familiarity with the kind of reasoning that uh, IQ tests test. So, you know, if you take something like the Raven's progressive matrices, so we think that you know, this, this is not a cultural, you know how the Ravens uh, work. No, un- unpack, unpack this. Uh, uh, so, so you get a series of pictures that show a shape being rotated or, or changed in regular ways. And then for the final pattern, you have to choose a among, a, among several options to complete the pattern. Right. So choose the shape mm. that completes the pattern. Right. Mm. So you might think that this is a culture fair test. It just tests your intelligence. It's not something you're taught. You don't learn in school how to do this. But if you give this kind of test to hunter gatherers, they they get like almost nothing. They 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 can't understand. But that doesn't mean their IQ is twenty. Their IQ would be much higher. It might be eighty if they uh, were raised under, if they went to school and were familiar with these tests. But we have become more familiar with uh, how tests work, and we our culture encourages us to categorize things in scientific uh, scientific ways. That mm. also uh, uh, prepares us for IQ tests. So, for some combination of these reasons, uh, IQ scores have been going up. Now, whether this corresponds to or to what extent this corresponds to actually higher intelligence, your actual ability to use your brain to solve problems is unclear. I mean, if Abraham Lincoln suddenly appeared here, I don't think he would be stupid at all. I don't think he would have any obvious limitations. So what you're pointing to is a sort of test maxing, uh, which over time would then actually pollute the, the sample that you're actually looking at. But the thing about that is you can only max to the max. Uh, it, uh, it doesn't go on forever. We're not going to have IQs of 2000 by today's standards. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it has basically maxed, at least in developed countries, uh, an IQ. So you had two trends 
for most of the 20th century that work against each other. On the one hand, you have the, the Flynn effect, which is for some environmental reasons, IQ scores are rising. And you also have dysgenic fertility. So less intelligent people have more children. Smart people get multiple PhDs and uh, put off having children forever. So our capacity for intelligence, our genetic capacity for intelligence has been going down. But the Flynn effect was stronger for most of that time, and now mm. it seems to be reversing. So intelligence, even the measured intelligence, is now going down because dysgenics is catching up with us. Mm. There were the uh, black-white IQ gap in the United States did close in the uh, early to mid-20th century because conditions were so bad for for blacks. So they, they really were deprived. They didn't have a, a proper education that was at all comparable to that of whites. But conditions closed you know, t to some extent, and the IQ gap has now stopped. Clo it stopped closing in the 1970s. So for 50 years, it's been 15, about 15 to 18 IQ points. There's no, no indication that it's going to close any more than that. Mm. So basically then what we're, we are, we were at historically then is as a society becomes less, uh, to use common day parlance, less racist, then the natural deviations or differences will then stand out in starker contrast. Right. Yeah. It it sort of have, has a uh, sort of similar to to the sort of sexist argument uh, or or uh, I, I guess feminist argument rather. <laughs> That's nice programming on you. No, no, no. The, but the 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 ar argument in modern feminists that you know the sexism has sort of contributed to the, the selection of careers and whatnot uh, in for females and and you yep. see. Societies like the Scandinavian ones, who who actually differ very much, and where males tend to, you know, uh, flow to traditionally male-dominated areas, and females tend to stay in, in you know, soft, if you will, nursing. So, so I mean, mo modernity, in a sense, gives you a sort of interesting sample of what people are or or can become, and you still have the problem of differences. So. I mean, some people on people on the left would would, would see this as you know indication of racists, uh, of, of structural racism to use their language, and this is a sort of the alternative explanation, right? That there are inherent differences between people uh, or and races, I guess. Right, and the environmental theory says that as conditions equalize, then the outcomes will become more equal. Yeah, but it doesn't say that they'll become greater, <laughs> the differences will become greater as they do with gender differences, or just stay the same forever as they do with uh, race differences. So very difficult for the environmentalists to explain. And usually they don't try to explain, they just call everyone who asks questions racist. Right. But I think I think like a, a, a sort of normie approach to this subject would be, you know, you, you could sort of be uh, realistic, if you will, and say, you know, I, I, I see the research, I acknowledge the fact that there are differences in IQ. Uh, I think the, the, the larger question is sort of what to do with that fact, because uh, a lot of people would, as you've stated, you know, say that this is immoral, the research is immoral due to the fact that it sort of could be used to, to promote sort of theories of a racial order and sort of harkens back to the sort of racialist ideas we had in the in the 1920s or 30s this is 
obviously always in the background of this argument you know that that uh, you know you have the uh, n- sort of nazi trolls on twitter saying you know uh, here we go again we guys we're right you know the 30s and 20s are back and and all all our nice theories from way back when are are, are validated by by the sort of research and this is sort of what sort of or ostensibly anyways fuels the sort of fears of 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 you know every polite society if and and liberals you know who 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 see that you know we're supposed to be 80 years and two world wars removed from this sort of thinking uh yeah I, i'm it's important to to note that the uh, the nazis who cite this research as supporting their views are very selective about what uh, research <laughs> they cite right yeah so and they don't like the the stuff about age they don't like making comparisons between east asians and whites or jews and whites uh, i mean they have different views about about the jews some of them are just deny that there's a difference between jewish and, and gentile maybe they're test maxers nathan well, i don't know i mean i guess we just grow up with uh, our mothers train us to take iq tests uh, <laughs> that's part of jewish culture but the thing is, I grew up in Jewish culture, and I I wasn't aware of any of this. You know, as far as I could tell, I had this same similar experience to my non-Jewish friends. But even if Jews are are just great at taking tests, when you look at actual Jewish achievement, it does suggest uh, it is consistent with a higher mean IQ. So the uh, the anti-Semites' explanation for that is that it's just Jews have gamed the system. So they control the Nobel Prizes, and uh, they control... So Einstein was a fraud uh, who mm-hmm. stole his all his ideas from Gentiles, and, and everyone else, they were all just frauds and, and everything controlled by Jews. So... Yeah, on the Einstein point, I think there are there is some esoteric... Um, theory that Gustave Le Bon actually came up with relative the relativist theory. Well, I mean the thing is you can do this with any theory. There's always some it doesn't come out of literally nowhere, right? Mm. There's some some discussion of these ideas and various theories. I mean the thing about Einstein, I have looked in because I've done been involved in these controversies, I did look up the the the, the, the arguments about this. Basically every physicist who was alive at the time thought that it was Einstein, including the anti-Semites. And the Nazis <laughs> the Nazis said that this was Jewish physics. Right. Yeah. So it's a now they said no, it was actually not Jewish physics, it was stolen, it was Gentile. But the the experts and the anti-Semites, and even after they admitted that they acknowledged that it wasn't just Jewish physics and that it was real physics. They still agreed that it was Einstein, and they just said, well, he happened to get there first, but it's not still not Jewish physics. It's, uh... So now, you know, dissident writers on Twitter have discovered that they were all wrong. Well, I don't find that very convincing. Of course, the feminists say that it was actually all Einstein's wife that she's the one who came up with it. Of course. So everyone, you know, trying to... It, it seems to be politics that are driving these these uh, suggestions. Uh, Although this is a primarily a, a male thing, a male phenomenon. But yes, there may be some, some, some women. So also regarding Jewish uh, achievement, it's relevant to note that the more objective the field, 
the higher in general, the higher is Jewish representation. So if you look at Nobel Prizes, Jews, you know, very high percentage of Jews winning Nobel Prizes in physics and uh, medicine. But then when you look at the the fake fields like peace and literature, where it's all just politics and... and Just to clarify, that's all Norwegian. We Swedes have nothing to do with the peace stuff. We just go for the sciences, just to be clear. We have literature as well, but I I think... I was going to ask you how, how to nominate more Jews for the for the Nobel Prize, but well, you can't. Well, help. Nathan, it seemed by your explanation that you've also excommunicated uh, Bob Dylan, which is uh, fascinating, uh, or he's excommunicating himself, I guess. Um, this just goes to show the self-deprecating nature. I, I I think he, I guess he deserved it. It's it's kind of silly to give Nobel prizes for literature and yeah. sci- as if it's a science, but. Okay, ninety percent of what Bob Dylan wrote made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> but, but still, I don't know. He was a he was an interesting guy. But statistically, I mean, Jews are less likely to get uh, peace and literature. And also, if you look at the Kyoto Prize, which is mm. administered by Japanese people, Jews win the Kyoto Prize at exactly the same rate that they win science Nobel prizes. So that's very curious that Jews have just as much influence over the Japanese Kyoto Prize as the Western Nobel. So basically, then to cut to the chase is that instead of assuming a world-encompassing conspiracy, maybe it's just a difference in intelligence, is your point here? Yeah, primarily uh, differences in intelligence and uh, probably personality traits, uh, personality traits as well. I mean, in some cases, like chess, Jews have been almost one half of world chess champions. I mean, how does the yeah. nepotism theory explain that? Like, no one is stopping the Gentile from, from winning. <laughs> in fact, now a Gentile is now beating yeah, everybody. Yes, right. I, I, like how, I, I like how you use Gentile because this is also a term that <laughs> Curtis Yarvin loves. That we should start using Gentile well, as the new. Well, actually, I, I confess, I'm I, I'm uh, using the politically correct term. Usually, I just say "goy." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Thank, thank God, I'm not a woman nor a chess champion. Right? It's morning, morning prayers for all all of us. Indeed. But it's sort of interesting to have the, you know, harking back to, to uh, Jewish science as a concept, because now we have sort of Western science and, and white science, if you will, uh, mm. from the left being sort of um, portrayed in the same sort of way that, you know, the Nazis sort of said Jewish science. You can see, you know, people in uh, South Africa, for instance, claiming that, you know, uh, obviously African black magic is sort of the superior science and the sort of logical mind of the West sort of uh, is this pernicious and not all, not at all universal uh, instrument for, for or, or rather universal, but, but you know, uh, sort of anti-black, I guess, science. And that's basically the argument against your studies as well, because you have you have one on one part sort of a, I guess moralist argument that that uh, you know this can't stand because you know it sort of undermines the moral principle of 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 equality, and and I find that very fascinating because like you have 
for a long time in the West, I guess, since the abandonment of, of you know, religious principles in the 19th century, uh, sort of built the world on, on rationality and sort of, uh, uh, Either like the Rousseauian sense of the tabula rasa person, you know, that could be filled up with all the good sort of, uh, uh, and, and sort of also a good building block for a utop- utopian society. But you also have the sort of, and I guess in the way me and Johan were brought up was very much in the sense of, of you know, that this uh, sort of, you know, equality is sort of enshrined by rationalist science. And this is what sort of very much it goes against or you're rather your argument goes against that sort of theme right because it cuts to the very heart of, of what it is to be sort of a, a modern person in the sense that you know uh, we have sort of worth and sort of it, it becomes sort of deterministic in the sense of uh, in the sense of it, it can predict success for a lot of people and hence it's sort of has worth in its own you know iq can be said yeah it's only intelligence but it's really sort of seen by many people as as dangerous because of its predictability uh, and the fact that you know societies are and especially you know the US society has been stratified on on and I guess all western societies in a sense have been stratified on on sort of IQ it's it's very much uh, a threat to the egalitarian idea and uh, and th- th- so that's the question you have the data what do we do with it yes that is the question well my approach is just to make people aware of this information and not try to dictate how a way to rearrange society to live up to this information, but just give people the facts and then let some new equilibrium develop. So if people really understood these facts, I mean, we have so many social programs that are based on the uh, blank slate premise or the premise that disparities must be caused by environment uh, or racism. Uh, Now, if we would just get rid of those programs and accept that there's going to be differences in outcome on average, that that would be great. That would be a great solution. I do worry though, that a lot of people just cannot accept these facts. They will never accept it, ever. It's too painful to accept that, you know, I belong to a group that, on average, I'm just not going to see people from my group represented in certain positions, if it's a meritocracy. And yet, here we are living together, so we need some solution. You know, we could have a, a quota system at least so that certain groups are have representation political representation representation in certain areas like um you know if it's just a meritocracy there'll never be or there'll there'll be very very few black judges uh, or people in certain decision making bodies maybe there could be quotas but i mean that's that's something we'd have to work out later for, for now i think just making people understand the information should be the main focus. I would like to give some pushback to, to both you, Nathan, and maybe I, I, I don't know what your sense of this is, Kalle, but basically one way of viewing this is that one reason why it's possible to, to discuss this is um, the difference in race or um, in difference in intelligence with regards to race is that people are de facto already acting on this today. That is, there's a, uh, if not, e- e- 
one way of understanding the the, um, the abhorrence in polite society to dis- discussing these things stands in a contrast to, or in a paradox with, the revealed preference to adhering to it. That is, you have in a way eugenics today, but on a liberal ground. That is, it's it's not a state acting uh, to create the perfect citizen and thereby eradicating eradicating less suitable ethnic traits. Then, but but what you do have is individuals that on a liberal basis can choose to abort or keep children based on their cognitive potential, let's say. Um, and then you also, in a way, have by proxy a selection of intelligence with who to mate with. You referred referred earlier to not getting into Harvard. <laughs> but one of the main benefits of Harvard is that you find your mating partners. That is, even though you could argue that people are not smarter for going to Harvard, that would still be the credentialism from having a degree. You won't be able to find a mate, a mate who can't stop talking about race differences. That's <laughs> like I yeah. was able to find a Columbia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is a good ad for Columbia, by the way, which I never sort of figured be the be, be the sort of breeding ground for this sort of uh, well, <laughs> mating patterns. I, it, it worked. It worked out for me. They've gone downhill. Yeah, well, okay. So, uh, we'll 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 get back to my point. But I, I'm curious about your mate. <laughs> we met in a class, a different class, taught by the same professor who I mentioned earlier. It was well. I don't want to call it phrenology class, but everybody had a skull. The table was full of skulls. And we had to, to learn the, the, the names of all the bones in the skull. And there are lots of little cracks and crevices and everyone has a name and we're supposed to learn. And so we had to choose a partner to, to do the phrenology with. And so she was my, my partner. <laughs> Definitely not phrenology class then. Yeah, I no. mean, the, the bone <laughs> science class. That's right. <laughs> but, but she lives in Korea otherwise. Yeah, no, she, I thought... came, she came a couple weeks ago. Okay. She okay. she's Korean. The the she's conspiracy Korean. deepens. Obviously she's East Asian descent. Uh, yeah, well But I, I I actually well we learned very little phrenology in that class, uh, but I did acquire uh, yes, a wife. The mate, yes. Now I get even more curious. So like are these issues as contentious in in Asia uh, now, I'm I'm realizing I'm using your sample of one with regards to your partner on this topic. But surely you must have been able to pick up or or try to differentiate between the different approaches to these topics. Well, in general, Koreans are very racist. Uh, East Asians are very racist. The average person there takes it for granted that there are differences between people, and they don't have the the same moral hangups that that Westerners do. Why is that? Well, um, they don't have the same history uh, with racial conflict as Westerners. Because they're homogeneous, they're more homogeneous. They don't have to confront, you know, the question of, of differences to the same, same extent as, um, as Westerners. Although they have some, uh, they have some racial diversity, but usually it's the extremes are not what, uh, what you see in, uh, in the West, where you have just enormous differences in outcome between blacks and whites. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Singapore, they have, I, I don't know anything about Singapore. I never lived there. I lived in, in Korea for, for a long time, also Hong Kong, and I spent time in Japan. But I know Korea the best. But they do have some 
some racial minorities, which the average person doesn't like very much. So, for example, when my wife and I were moving to a new apartment, we were interviewing different moving companies. And one of them boasted about all the races they won't hire. So they only hire Koreans. That means they don't hire Chinese. That means they don't hire Uzbekistan people. Uh, they don't hire Indians. Uh, he was very proud of of, uh, of all. He could have just said we only hire Koreans, but he wanted to emphasize that that they they definitely wouldn't hire any other race. So obviously you wouldn't that wouldn't be socially acceptable in uh, America or Sweden, but in Korea that's relatively normal. However, people are sort of aware that that publicly they're supposed to be egalitarian. Mm. Whether they really feel this way or not, I don't know, but at least educated people will say adopt, adopt the, the line from America because uh, at least the, a lot of academics also got their degrees in America or the UK. So they took that stuff back to Korea, even if they don't fully understand it, they, they try to, to repeat this. Everyone is the same thing. In fact, I had a talk canceled at the Korea, uh, well, I won't say the university publicly, but one of the top uh, universities in Korea. Because just like 48 hours before I was scheduled to get to give the talk, they say like, no, the, there are objections to, to my presence on campus and they're canceling it. So I, I'm, and I'm quite sure that the person who, who was behind that is a Korean who got his PhD in the UK. Mm. Thinks I'm a racist, too racist for Korea. Is that, is that on the top of your CV then probably? What got canceled? So yeah, too so racist. Nathan Kofner's too racist for Korea. I don't need. I don't need to put it on my CV because people people wrote it all over the internet. Right. So that's where they 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 found it. Okay. So I still <laughs> I still want to come back to whether or not we are de facto acting on race differences, but on a liberal basis. But I'm still more curious. You say that you got cancelled, but maybe this is a segue to you moving from the US to the UK, like. It, when you were done at Columbia, you started your studies in England at Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. So, so I got BA from Columbia. Then I went to Lingnan University in Hong Kong mm-hmm. to, uh, I was enrolled in the PhD program because I wanted to study with Nevin Sesserdich. Uh, the most famous work is Making Sense of Heritability, which deals with as the title suggests, controversies about the nature of heritability, measuring heritability, and implications for understanding race differences. So, is this a thing that like Western Western academics or intellectuals who get pushed out move to Asian countries? There are a few examples of that, but not 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 that many. But Nevin was was one of them. He's originally from Croatia. Okay. Grew up under communism and was a critic of communism and now a critic of the new political orthodoxy. So I was in at Lingnan for three years. Then I left to get an MPhil in history and philosophy of science from Cambridge, then DPhil in philosophy at Oxford, and now I'm back at Cambridge. And is your sense of studying these things uh, in the UK different from the American context or is it all part of the same bag? I don't even know what's happening in America anymore. I left in 2011. Oh. 
And a lot has changed since then. Yeah. It, it was like 2012 when Columbia went off the rails in terms of like student com- complaining about reading books. Like Homer is too scary for them. Uh, it was unbelievable. I and mean, none of that would have happened just two years before when I was reading those books at Columbia. And then something, something happened. But I, yeah, I, I haven't experienced it. Because America doesn't doesn't want me. I I was never accepted to any PhD program in America. So a lot of people on on Twitter attribute my success or such as it is to uh, being Jewish. So I got into uh, you know Oxford because I'm Jewish, and I got the job at Cambridge because I'm Jewish. But in fact, Jews have ten times more power in the United States than they do in the UK. I've been totally shut out from the US. And none of the people who were involved in hiring me at Cambridge were Jewish and so on. But it's interesting that I have been far more successful in the UK. Yeah, nothing nothing happening for me in the US. I guess there is sort of an optimistic and a pessimistic view of, of what's happening, not only in the US, but in, I guess, the rest of the Western world. The sort of high tide of... of uh, well, if you would call it like egalitarianism, I guess, but it's sort of a, it seems to be anyway, for some of us, like a high tide of, of uh, or if not, I mean, the optimistic view is it's sort of a, a Maoist, uh, you know, 70s moment of, of, of struggle rebellion. sessions, you mean? Struggle or? sessions, but also rebellion and also sort of, sort of uh, middle, upper middle class kids wanting re- to repent for, 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 for sins and not really having a religion to do it in. So they have to sort of find a, an academic or intellectual language to, to, to sort of support their sort of grief and guilt of being too privileged. But I mean, it also seems that, you know, apart in the seventies and sixties, they didn't conquer the institutions in the way that they, they have done now. And also, uh, I mean, the corporate world is is basically the same, if not if not even worse. So it's institutionalized. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering, like, fr- from your sense and from your research, I mean, as you said, I mean, there's nothing sexier than a guy who talks about differences between races. And especially, uh, I mean, people who have the sort of sense of, 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 like you once said, like if you're in polite society, you can't. I mean, the fact that we've been talking about this uh, suggests we're not in it. But I guess, like the rest of the world, how are they supposed to absorb this sort of information? Is it easier to talk uh, like Charles Murray did in the beginning, like um, maybe intelligence differences uh, inside of a group, for instance, the white, the white group and the and the stratification of of that sort of that sort of society, for instance, like uh, you know, in 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 uh, uh, we've gone uh, to a society, you know, that it's sort of a taboo to to marry someone that doesn't have, at least like in your, if you're in the middle class or upper class, like if you don't have, if you marry someone without a degree, well, they might, they have to be like a noble or a trust fund kid or, or, or maybe a royal, but otherwise it's sort of unthinkable. And as Johan said, like, like having an abortion because of, you know, um, detected cognitive disabilities is so, sort of also seen as, uh, seen as, 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 you know, uh, not even, uh, worth the thought. You know, it's an automatic. And if you sort of think about it, you're sort of a Christian fundamentalist or, or, or something else. So I'm wondering how to even like uh, disseminate and talk about this to, to polite society 
and have some sort of reach because now it feels like it's mainly like people who are IQ 130 or above or sort of want to be talking about this. So, so wokeism is the logical consequence of taking the egalitarian premise seriously. Mm. So you think, I mean, what world are you living in if you think that the Congolese and Koreans are literally the same? Like, But if you believe that, if you believe that, then the most ur- moral, urgent moral task is to correct for these disparities. Mm. So you're saying the Congo could be like Korea. So if if we would just stop being racist to the Congo, then in 30, 40 years, they would have the Congo Samsung and they would be sending us computer chips. Well, then uh, we've got to stop the racism, to take out the racists. And well, we can't really find the racists because the, the racists are in the hills of Arkansas. You know, those are the only like open racists. And it's hard to explain why how they're responsible for for you know all these bad things. So you have to look, you know, for very subtle forms of racism and. Uh, uh, maybe it's microaggressions or a statue of a white man who had a politically incorrect view. Maybe that is what causes these these terrible outcomes. Now, the the premise of wokeism has been accepted. It's been by three or four generations of liberals. It's just now we're taking it seriously. Mm. This is what our grandparents thought, probably at least, our, certainly our parents, probably our grandparents thought that everyone is the same and eventually everything is going to equal out. And the differences just aren't going away. So if you really believe that they're environmental, then you will get wokeism. Mm. So all all attempts to push back against wokeism are meaningless if we don't talk about this, about this issue. This is why I wanted us to get back to discussing that in the liberal order today, there is a revealed preference for selecting based on proxies for intelligence. That's why we, we talked earlier about like um, how you go for self-eugenics with, with regards to the kids you have um, or or who you select as mating partner based on, on credentials. I mean, we can definitely talk about universities not being the elite institutions they used to be and that these um, degrees aren't worth the ink on, on the paper, so to speak. But I think it's relevant to bring this up because then you you de facto have the kind of world order that race essentialists would have had in the, in the beginning of the 1900s. And I think it's also interesting to see why these things are becoming more stigmatized to discuss when you're actually overcoming part of the structural problems that was started out. We're talking about like when you have done away with most of the possibilities of getting a higher education or civil rights or different employments or whatever, um, then you see the backlashes. You talked about the, the, the previous generations of liberal parents, and I'm thinking of this, you know, the, the Hilltop Coca-Cola commercial from 71. I, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. Perfect harmony, perfect harmony. 
you have all these people from different places and all they're all united in capitalism. So uh, excuse me for being a bit vulgar Marxist here, but to what degree is this a crisis of the economic order we're seeing of not being able to sustain itself and therefore any problem needs to be blamed on bigotry? You, me- you mentioned in, t- uh, in 2012 it was then that Colombia started going off the rails with regards to identity politics and wokeism. Well, the obvious thing is you had a financial crash and, and you've not been able to really regain your, your standing in the world since then, um, in the US. I mean, sure, you still have the, um, hegemonic influence, but within the US is really much a country of coming apart. And I'm using the phrase consciously because that's what Carl referred to earlier with regards to Charles Murray that, in the 90s, um, when he wrote the, on, on these issues, you could look back on previous decades when the boss could marry the secretary and therefore you would have some kind of, if not intelligence, then at least a class communion through, through marriage. But if you select by your credentials and in fact is stigmatized to not select by your credentials, then the fact you're going to have some kind of cognitive aristocracy on paper, at least, um, guarding itself against Either, either the kind of like troglodyte racist view that like race is real that you have at the far end of the bell curve, but you also have this like hyper autistic Spurg smart people like yourself, Nathan, who would go for, well, race is, uh, race intelligence is real on the other uh, end of the spectrum. And in the middle, you have the normie mid approach that racism is real as opposed to race is real. So there's an idea that the, the race stuff, Black Lives Matter movement, and so on, was a response to Occupy Wall Street. Mm. So the Occupy Wall Street movement was getting off the ground, according to this theory, and the business interests felt threatened by that, so they decided to shift focus to race, and then they would be on you know the right side of the race issue, and then and then they would be left alone. So now, I mean, logically, that's sorry. Is, and when you say left alone, is that because race is an immutable characteristic and therefore you can rely on it in building a, a political coalition where its class is mutable and therefore workers are un, less reliable? Well, they will make harder demands. Or well, the, the point is people would focus on race rather than class at all. So people would just okay, ignore right. the fact that, I mean, again, speaking from their perspective, so that they would ignore the fact that the bankers are stealing all their money and exploiting people and they'd focus on on you know just getting whitey and that was that was the plan that would benefit the the, the business interests hmm. now logically that might seem plausible i don't know whether whether it seems plausible or not but i'm not aware of any actual evidence for this or any good explanation of how this could have been planned or accomplished and how, how would that, I just, I mean, it's an interesting, interesting idea. I just don't see, I don't see the evidence for it. And I don't see why it's necessary to have an alternative explanation from the explanation that people just finally took these ideas to their logical conclusion. Because yep. this anti-racism stuff is not, not new at all. It's been going on for, for generations. A more plausible explanation, it's to me, for why the floodgates opened around 2012 is you had finally you you'd had so much effort placed into erasing the differences the millennials like us at least in america we grew up with the idea that this this whole racism racism thing was coming to an end 
Mm. We were finally colorblind. We didn't expect this these things to go on forever. Mm. Uh, that was my impression of people around me. <laughs> and it became evident around this time that the old approach was not going to solve the problem. And you had a generation who had grown up with very radical teachers, uh, elementary and high school teachers, who were the product of these radical uh, teacher education schools. And uh, I mean, that makes a very big difference. But your education when you're a child really stays with you. And that's what forms your conscience. Then you people think, oh, I look at my conscience and my conscience tells me, you know, ABC. Well, in fact, the, that was just written there by your your teachers and your your environment when you're a kid. And this anti-rate people have been inculcated with the anti-racism stuff uh, to a very extreme degree, and then realizing that the racial disparities are not going away. It was just a matter of time before people said, "We're sick of this. We're we can't wait any longer. We want we want this situation to be fixed now." And that's that's wokeism. That's the great mm. awakening. Okay, so the previous consensus that is basically the consensus on colorblindness then gives way to a more radical critique from the minorities, which could then be said of minority pride, if you will. Uh, well, uh, also go going back to the your previous comment, I suspect that previous generations didn't believe in egalitarianism as much as they said they did. Like our grandparents would probably have said, yeah, everyone's the same. But did they really believe it? Like, uh, maybe not. Like, it's just a nice thing to say, and it's not hurting anybody, and it makes it makes people feel good to say we're the same. So let's just, you know, let's just say let's just say that's what we think. And there might have been some lingering doubts in our parents' generation, but then finally, people have really become convinced that yes, everybody really is the same. And they really feel that way in their bones, and they just are so confused by the fact that we have these disparities, and they have no real, no good explanation for this. So I think that's also an important part of the puzzle. In a way, we're circling into what follows from this. What would you do politically with regards to not just discussing what is the cause of the difference, but also what is the course of action with regards to the difference or because of the difference. And I'm thinking, I don't know if you want to push back here, Carl, but I'm thinking with regards to the Swedish situation where on the one hand, you've had a state that wanted to, like when you, when you try to create a unitary state, not, not just in terms of the territory, but with regards to the people within it, like the cultures, um, the, the regional patriotism, if you will. That is not referring to a fact. That is, you don't have a similarity within, within the territory, but you want a similarity within the territory. So this is a political body, a state that exerts a will. That is, you take a normative approach and then you try to impose the policy in the world. And one of the results of that is a unitary citizen, like you have uh, healthcare for everyone, schooling for everyone, military service for everyone, and so on. And sure, there are discrepancies or or you fall short of, of the ideal, but that vision was made flesh for many decades in the mid-1900s, which is not the case today. 
So in a way, I think what's relevant to discuss here is to what degree someone enacting these policies can take a normative approach. There's one thing to say, we should be similar, we should have equality. And another one say, we are equal, therefore we impose these policies. Did you see the difference? Like one is, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. No, but but I think, you know, I, I think you're, you're basically rehashing the same thing that happened after the Soviet project fell, that sort of had the same uh, premises, right? The difference being, you know, uh, Soviet Union was not a unitary state. It could not be a unitary state because you had a lot of, you know, uh, you had the, the Russian sort of core states, but then you had so many different nationalities around them. A and that is ironically what sort of uh, the, the centrifugal forces in, in that project was sort of what tore it apart. But what happened was, you know, that sort of experiment fell, like the Swedish experiment fell, has fallen on its own sort of impracticability and is sort of trying to build a new Soviet man or a new, you know, Swedish social democratic man that sort of project has fallen. And, and the only question is what will sort of take its place. And you have sort of two alternatives or three alternatives. But, you know, polit politically speaking, you have like one basically harkening back to the fact that, you know, uh, let, let, let's try and put, put Humpty Dumpty to back together again and, and, and try to to just do a reboot of the of a sort of project that that's failed in everybody's mind just max new paint on it and try to sell it at the ballot box and the other is so sort of moving past it but the problem is moving past it sort of you, you have to have something else to uh, another project to sort of sell and this is the problem you know that america sort of never had but it's trying to fit into because it's it's trying to do this sort of universal uh, movement to uh, at least from the elite saying you know we're all tr sort of the same and we need to form you know uh, a sort of new uh, american person but the problem is you know you have too many cracks in that system to 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 uh, you know to talk about you know a socialist I mean, it's not even socialist, but it's sort of the Rousseauian, again, tabula rasa thing doesn't make sense in an American context. And hence, you need the sort of struggle between the races from a left point of view and, and the sort of, you know, like like in, in the Soviet revolutionary times, you have to have the sort of kulaks to 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 blame for the problems. You have to have saboteurs in the system who sort of makes uh, racism happen. You have to have the boogeyman to, to sort of implement the sort of social policies you want. I think in a sense, the discourses are on, on and, and I think that's why, you know, Europe is moving in one way. I mean, we're, Europe is moving basically to the right in many questions, politically speaking, and the US is, is moving to the left. I don't think you know we can we can either go back or 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 formulate uh, uh, you know an alternative to to sort of the twentieth century ideologies. But I'm just saying you know I I think we can sort of internalize what what sort of Nathan has has put forward and and the sort of viewpoint, and maybe you know try to formulate a, a better sort of universalism to just keep the social peace. That's my reasoning uh, anyway. Do you want to respond, Nathan? Because otherwise I had a, um, a thought on this as well. Why don't you go first? I'm, I'm thinking of the, uh, the Swedish phrase, lika barn leka best. Alike attracts alike. 
And that would be the go-to solution based on the differences you describe here. And, and at the same time, I should say that like there's something in me that reacts to it that wants to make the why can't we all get along case. So I'll try, try to steel man that. Like, why can't we all get along on the basis that you then have differences? And, and the obvious counterpoint to that would be, well, if you formalize differences on ethnic grounds, then you, you make that the, the vector for your politics. And like you get parliamentary uh, forces that then speak on behalf of, of uh, a group on immutable characteristics, such as race, as opposed to mutable, which would be class. But I'm trying to think if there's there's a way you could argue for the differences in intelligence some from a sort of almost, if you expand the union idea in psychoanalysis of different archetypes, that, that when you build a community or a tribe, you have people taking on different roles. And these roles would then over time be fairly stable, recurring at least. And and the point of the individual is that to try to find out what are their strengths and, and their weaknesses. And you serve the community with your strengths and you ask for support on, on, on the grounds of your weakness. I understand that this would be viewed from an egalitarian perspective as a hierarchy, but let's go for asymmetry as a more neutral term here, that you have different skill sets based on different groups of people. And then you would try to create like a third rail stigmatizing policy on making a differentiation in the worth in society. That is like your right to vote and so on. But I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that I'm trying to construct this based on what would be the end result. But, but the reason for me voicing that concern is I think this would be the normie uh, knee jerk reaction, uh, that they try to recreate something that approximates an egalitarian order but on the basis of essentially inequality on aspects that you cannot change, or at least they're hereditary as opposed to environmentalist. I, I think that we should be very skeptical about the idea of making long-term plans and proposing some, some final vision of where society is going to end up even in our own lives, we can't do this. As there are always unexpected things that happen and take us places that we would never imagine. I think it would be a better strategy to focus on more medium-term problems, which are ending or derailing the woke juggernaut and making people aware of certain important facts that undermine a lot of political thinking, which is based on egalitarianism. And then what is going to happen? Okay, so based on what we know now, I have my own preferences. I guess it would be nice if we would just treat everyone as individuals or whatever, but I don't think that's realistic. Uh, I just don't think that, you know, in, in Singapore, they have their own their own way of working of of dealing with the the facts that the the different races in Singapore have different different outcomes, it works for them. But when you have massive differences, yep. but, but just to clarify, like Singapore has cut off the the um, the liberal approaches to to these questions because you don't even I mean you have quotas for which ethnic groups can live in an, an area. So 
Well, I mean, do are we liberal? We we also have de facto. We don't have the same kinds of quotas, but we have plenty of de facto quotas in the West. Uh, I mean, in the West now, the way you are treated in every area of life is now colored by your race. When you apply for a job, when you apply for school, when you interact with people, how they treat you, everything everything is based on race and correcting supposed disparities and responding to past event, historical events. So I don't think that's, it's not like we're liberal and Singapore is not liberal. What I'm trying to say is that given that we have a nominally liberal society, we can of course discuss what is real liberalism, but the same could be said for like real Marxism or whatever. Like one of my point is here is that given that there's a revealed preference in the West in liberal societies, to choose the partners you have, to choose the kind of uh, babies you want to keep in your womb, then it's harder to hide behind a leader like Lee Kuan Yew to say that, well, this person made this choice for me. No, you made this choice yourself. So in a way, you are directly responsible for your own, if you will, race preference then, then as as opposed to in, in Singapore. Uh, well, although the gov- government intervention does play a role in this cultural phenomenon. Like, if I can... If you can sue somebody for workplace uh, discrimination, then the government is influencing your relationship in the workplace. Because if you look at them the wrong way, they can say that you were racist against them and that was a hostile work environment. And then, you know, they'll, they'll be bankrupt by lawsuit. That's the government's doing. That's not the same as if, in my opinion, it's not really different than if they had mandatory quotas, mm-hmm. which now that apparently they do. I, I think in California, like a certain percentage of the board has to be uh, female. I believe that's the case. Presidents say openly that they're appointing somebody based on their race or sex. Trump, when he appointed a Supreme Court justice, he said, it's, I'm, I need, it needs to be a woman to, uh, to replace Scalia. Biden said he was going to choose a black woman so but 99% of the time they don't say it explicitly they just everybody knows that you're supposed to diversify certain positions i guess that what makes what you describe here as woke is more da- dangerous or unhinged than than what you have in singapore is that i would trust the state in singapore to have a measure of moderation whereas there's no breaks on how many people of minorities or color or or whatever on these boards. So there's no case for not having one more black woman on, on a board. Is that's my point here. So and 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 the, in that case then what someone like President Biden does is that he responds to a real or perceived political preference. Whereas the Singaporean state has I mean, they, they have their own ideas for what makes a good political order. But, but my point is there's what we're, we're up against eventually here is how you reinstate the, um, the state's ability to, to rule based on an idea of what is the preferred political, the preferred way of building a society. And as of the moment, there are no breaks on how equal or equitable governing bodies should be should what they should look like based on immutable characteristics and even though there are immutable characteristics in a regimented society such as singapore 
they would not argue for, say, I mean, there's also an idea that you need to have an X amount of Malayans, X amount of Han Chinese, and, and so on, sure. But, but you would not accept like a, a board of trustees that would only have Malayans, for instance. Well, I, our system by its nature is more chaotic than the, the system in Singapore. So that will apply to our, the way we, we deal with the race problem as well as everything else. But I think that Singapore, we would be less impressed by Singapore if they had the same, the, the same leadership, but with our population. Yeah. You know, I, yes, there are differences between Malays and, and Han Chinese. But I mean, if you look at the, the, the data, not just IQ, but crime rates and, uh, and, uh, that sort of thing and following following the law the differences between blacks and whites in the US are just enormous uh, just uh, uh i mean like in new york city the it's like a, uh, of the criminal shootings or, or discharging of a firearm it's like a 100 times the differences the differences are are uh, uh i i believe it's it's like close to 100 times the difference for certain crimes and with uh, you know crimes like robbery in the cities it's well over like 10 times difference in in crime rates and this isn't the situation in singapore and i think if you had even the, the, the singaporean solutions wouldn't necessarily address uh, the problems that, that we have with race Right. And, but I think it's also, like you said, Nathan, I think like it's, that's also a function of history. Like if you could build a state from, from nothing, like Singapore was, like it was a, basically a swamp before, before, you know, the, the Lee Kuan Yew took over and sort of made it into, and also the, the sort of very, specific geographical location of, of Singapore and, and, you know, it's sort of history with the federation of, 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 of Malaysia is sort of, you know, it, it, it sort of can't be compared. And I'm, I'm, this is where I sort of differ from Johan, who is, you know, by his own accounts, a sort of vulgar Marxist, but because I, I don't believe, you know, uh, the, the will to engineer anything into being is sort of, for me, sort of very much 20th century approach to this and sort of the fallacy of the 20th century is to, to sort of look at that and say, okay, how can we sort of fix this by government intervention? And my sort of own, own project is more, trying to internalize uh, sort of what you said and sort of think about how, uh, you know, uh, sort of what that means in the sense that I think, you know, the, the interesting part is that it's very much a challenge to, to it, it, on a sort of surface level, it's sort of very much a challenge to, to the sort of modern, modern conception of, of equality. But for me, at least, it also sort of reinforces the need for something else that may be the sort of scientific approach to, worth and sort of the hollowness of the modern experience which is very much you know a rejection of of all things spiritual uh, you know and, and sort of very much based on evolutionary strategies in a sense and has sort of the, the veneer of of universalism but really hasn't and that's sort of exposed by in my view uh the sort of findings you present and i would like you to see your your view on this because i know you've done a lot of research on and a lot of writing on uh, you know the evolution of of uh, religious communities and strategies to survive and i'm i'm just wondering how like keep the social order and keep peace and in the long term sort of one of the best strategies seems to be like cohesion in a group and i i, I sort of 
think that you know the big religions of the world have sort of made a better uh, job of this than than the major sort of intellectual traditions in the in the modern era have have done so i think that's an interesting sort of case how do you build sort of a community around universal characteristics they're not based on you know science or anything like that this for for me or you well you has talked enough already eh? so i'd like to hear you fair point to be fair to the uh, modern system i mean there's much less violence now than there used to i mean sweden has has problems but it's still like the number of murders and, and assaults and so on uh, i'm sure is much less than it was when uh, people were very religious sure we we have different problems than we used to but it is less violent and Yes. In, in that respect, it's, it's, I guess, successful. Although the modern secular system is probably less success, successful in terms of this creating a feeling of community and uh, that sort of thing. Religion was, was better at that. Now, when you have like very different people, different communities living in the same society, yeah, it's going to be hard to unite everybody under some contrived super identity not sure there's any any solution but, but that, to that. that's true but that's also sort of the history of, of christianity in a sense right because you have or or i guess hinduism also i'm just hacking out the f- fact that you know obviously yes the material standards and 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 hence sort of violence has sort of decreased in a sense right uh, over 200 years but we've also had sort of mass killings under modernity that we haven't really seen i mean even even the bloodier parts of the of of uh, the middle ages were sort of i mean they weren't sort of as orgistic than uh, uh, like we've se- seen in the in the 20th century in a sense so the, i think that's what i'm sort of uh, i'm not i'm not being nostalgic about you know the middle ages but i'm i'm just saying you know m- modernity and the sort of fact that yes crime is sort of low and, and the sort or lower than it was sort of creates its own set of, of of problems for me because you have still have the sort of avatavistic sort of uh forces coming through i mean people will remain people so and and even though we have you know more resources uh, at our disposal than we used to have uh, we don't have to sort of fight for them in the same way it is it, sort of counterintuitive right because in a sense we were all brought up in a way that, yes, I mean, Obama becoming president was supposed to be like the end of history. And after that, we were supposed to, you know, uh, the lions were supposed to sleep with the sheep and, and, and everyone's supposed to be peaceful. That didn't happen. So now we're in sort of the conundrum of, of you know, where are we going? And, and sort of all bets are off. And the woke answer to, to it seems to be, you know, uh, more equality, more resources, more, more, more of the 20th century leftism. And the alternative is sort of unclear. It could be like ethnic nationalism. If you have that sort of country, like a Hungar- Hungarian or, or a Polish situation, when you have like a sort of mono state, but for a lot of countries, that's not a viable action. Like at least not, you know, electorally, I guess. Nationalism or ethnic nationalism appears to be a pretty weak force unless it's like deliberately cultivated by you know, a large scale program like in Germany in the thirties or most people just don't really care that much. They don't like some people, a, a very small minority care a lot, but most white people basically don't seem to care if 
non-white immigrants come to their country. This is also true, it seems, in Asia. Japan is now starting to open the floodgates to immigration. Not, it's not, it'll, it'll take a long time for them to get to, to where Sweden is, but, or the United States, but they're on that, on that road. And in surveys, most Japanese people, I think it's 70% say that immigrants make their country stronger. Mm. So, and I didn't see the data for this, but I imagine that the uh, support for immigration is higher in the younger generations. So it would probably be even more than that in the, in the, uh, Japanese Gen Z. And uh, it's just a matter of time, unless some, something, some, th- something unexpected happens that, uh, most people are just going to open the borders and they don't care. There'll be a small minority who complain, but they'll be outvoted. So, of course, under the right conditions, people can become nationalistic because white people can be nationalistic. It's, but under current conditions, it's difficult to see that happening. And historically, people become nationalistic when there's some conflict, some military conflict, when there's, uh, they're very when they're very poor and they've got nothing to lose. Just you know, the people living in you know, an apartment in the, in the city or the suburbs or whatever, just well off white or Asian people, they don't. There's just very few of them are care much about nationalism, preserving their race or uh, preserving their whatever their, their culture. They just don't care. This brings to mind the theories, at least among historians, on on the formation of nationalism. It would be interesting to to have your your take on this, Nathan, because I'm thinking of the the main strand in nationalist studies or nationalism studies would be Benedict Anderson. So, like the idea of imagined communities that essentially you have a state that wills itself into existence. And the opposing view to that would be more like primordialist. I'm thinking primarily of something like Anthony D. Smith, uh, Oxford uh, sociologist and historian, who argued that what, whatever nationalism you would have in the modern age, that is from, say, French Revolution onwards, that would be the outgrowth of a pre-existing ethne, is the word he uses, ethne being modeled very much on the Jewish experience since basically uh, pre-modern uh, ancient times of having what you, what you and Carl discussed as like a religious community, essentially. So the, the, the criteria for making an ethne would be, on the one hand, a shared religious belief, but you also have ideas of um, lineage. So in the Jewish case, that would be primarily with regards to the mother in ancestry. But you also have a shared language, and also an idea of a territory that is yours. So like uh, Israel, obviously, in this case. And these factors, I might have forgotten one or two. If you have these, then over time you can create a coherent and um, resilient community, essentially. So the reason why I bring this up is because over time then, these everything I just talked about is in a way environmentalist factors, but which over time make for a heritage hereditary qualitative difference between this group as opposed to another group. Do you, you see my point here that in a way what we're discussing is how you how you solidify a notion of race or or actual race both in gene pool but 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 also in in ways of of acting. And the reason why I bring up Jews or Jewishness in this regard is because there's less to do with what you believe in and more to do with how you actually act. 
that is like the Jewish notion of of making God by 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 adhering to God's law, as opposed to the Christian notion would be that you it's your belief essentially. So I, I wonder what what you, what your approach to to this would would be, would like how you how you self uh, reinforce the no- notion of a race or or actual race. Well, in the Jewish case, since 2010. The intermarriage rate among non-Orthodox Jews in America has been, I believe, 72%. So the secular Jewish community is over. Like, uh, which, well, is kind of, kind of sad, but uh, Jews just don't care. (laughs) I I intermarried too. Uh, No more than, than other uh, white populations in Israel. There's some some uh, study suggested that a majority of immigrants to Israel are not Jewish according to Jewish law because in order to immigrate to Israel under the right of return you only need one Jewish grandparent and then you can bring your spouse who is zero percent Jewish yeah. but not not Jew- so I could go but even if I was just my mother's father was Jewish doesn't make me Jewish. No one thinks that makes me Jewish. But then I could take, I could go and I could bring my Korean wife. In fact, I'm, I'm entirely Jewish, but mm. for the purpose of the law of return, yeah, they're not interested in racial purity. And they brought in like the many Africans who practiced a version of Judaism, but were not, have no genetic connection with other Jewish populations. Oh, are you talking about Ethiopians or Jamaicans now? Ethiopians. Okay, all right. Jamaicans. Uh, 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 <laughs> well, a lot of blacks in the uh, in the United States actually identify as Jewish. Like Black a lot Israelites, of Ka- right? Uh, well, a lot of Kanye West kind yeah. of people who just yeah. say, "Yeah, I'm Jewish. I'm blacks are the real Jews." I, I, I mean, there are others like he's not the. He, we shouldn't draw too many conclusions from one example, but there are. That is a phenomenon. Now, the Jewish population that will survive is the religious one, which is totally closed off to modern thinking. They don't let their kids get a get a real education. They give them textbooks to the children with the uh, uh, information they don't like, just scratched, scratched out with a marker. So if there's a reference to evolution or dinosaurs or something like that, they'll just uh, cover it up with marker and then give it to the, the child, which I think is going to select for like a lack of curiosity. Like people who remain in that community are those who don't care to investigate. Like what are they hiding? But anyway, so but, on our, yeah. on our previous uh, reference to bell curve, there's like you have the troglodytes on the left and like very smart people on the right, then you would then end up agreeing. They would end up agreeing with you then. Yeah, I guess so. But that, that, that's a common phenomenon, right? Um, but yeah, sorry. But so then your point would be that to what degree you would have ethne, uh, the like religious community previous in history, to what degree that is true, that is no longer the case, is essentially what you're saying. Well, so the only way to have that kind of community would be to invent a religion and then lie to everybody about it in order to, Mm. and then brainwash everyone to accept your, which is not, not, probably not something we'd be that enthusiastic about. But it Uh, works in Utah. 
Nathan, it works mm-hmm. in Utah. Yeah, I, I seem happy. Uh, yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> but I guess in a way, I mean, we talked in a way, this is a corollary to our previous discussion on the test maxing with regards to IQ tests. But this only becomes a problem that is like, well, in Israel, you would have a dilution of whatever is the actual race difference if we want to have a high IQ. That is, you want to have a maxing of the IQ potential in the general population, right? Right. And I think that is in a way what we're discussing here, that what is the, hmm, how should I frame this? The the civilizational project, essentially, and to what degree civilizational project overlaps with an ethnic project. So from the outlook of a, a, a nationalism or a nationalist project, then you would want to have the, the political sovereignty of a people. But in this case, it's actually more, our, our premise here is more eugenic in the sense that you want to max the intelligence because our idea here is that if you have a high intelligence, then that civilization can do more things. Not only do more things, but I think intelligence is valuable because it allows us to have certain experiences and to to understand ideas, which I think is valuable, intrinsically valuable. It's just the more, in general, the more intelligence, the better. But it seems that most people don't care much about dysgenic tr- trends or the genetic future of the population any more than they do about the racial makeup of the population. Just, you know, people get a little less intelligent, more intelligent. Most people don't seem to care. I think you also hear of like historical corollaries to say in the war, in the, like the Peloponnesian Wars and, and what followed thereafter uh, in in wars between Persians and, and Greeks, is that Persians would be viewed as far more sophisticated and intelligent than, than the Greeks. But the Greeks would still be able to be more successful in, in war. You, you would have a stronger... You can on one hand say that intelligence makes for better, I guess, weaponry or statecraft, but you would still be... You would stay... A, a, a people who have a religious coherence, if you want that to be a proxy for being less intelligent, that is like more myth-believing, then you have a better rationale for why you fight. Sure, your fighting might be less efficient, but if you're willing to persevere in a warlike state, then then victory will be yours. So ironically then, we're discussing here how a less intelligent people are able to wage war more successfully than an intelligent one. Yeah, I mean, from a from a fitness perspective, uh, intelligence may th- th- there may be diminishing or even negative returns on high intelligence. Evolution only cares about what you accomplish in terms of surviving and reproducing. Being able to perform calculations in your head or think deeply about the nature of values and free will or whatever, or mathematics. Yeah, sometimes that can have some practical, lead to some practical application, but somebody who's just, you know, being charismatic and strong and, and uh, you know, making babies, that's what's rewarded by evolution. And those are the people who tend to survive and proliferate. If intelligence were 
such an advantage from an evolutionary perspective, we would have a lot more of it. Yeah. And, and it would be seen as sexy, which yeah. is, it's, it's, it's only to the, to, it's, it's only seen as sexy as far as it can get you sort of status or money or, or something that is considered sexy. Right. right. The groupies don't hang around MIT. Right. Throwing themselves at the, the physics professors. That, no. that never happens. So, because intelligence is not sexy for, most people and 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 hence you know the the sort of why why it takes till the 60s to to select for that sort of characteristics rather than you know overtly sexual ones and why a sort of in in, in a weird way i mean uh all, all the all the uh, beautiful people seem stupid and all the and all the sort of intelligent people seem ugly but but you still have some sort of selecting going on there there it's not entirely based on on you know sexual characteristics uh and it, it's sort of interesting because we have all these sort of uh, uh you know uh, celebrities who who obviously aren't that bright uh and, and look pretty good uh and they are sort of icons but they're not in any way they're sort of uh relics of 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 a different time and system where we could have sort of select for beauty where you had sort of a king going around saying you know i want that one and that one and now it's only you know a few high income earners who who sort of have that sort of sort of preference but i wonder on on that point carl about um a few <laughs> uh, very few men pollinating many women <laughs> As are, we, was the, are we building bunkers or, or is this like a strange uh, strange love sort of uh, a question now how are we are we are we putting Nathan in in like in charge of, ch- charge of like the Dr Strange love and uh, like doc, professor how many people do we need to re- reproduce I love to see a remake of Strange Love with like Askanasi Dr uh, Kofnes Well you you know uh, Dr Strange love was based on uh, four real life People. It was uh, von Neumann, Ed Teller, Hermann Kahn, and von Braun. Yeah. Three Jews mm. and one Nazi. <laughs> yes, and, and one Nazi. He, uh, he used to use one, one, one right? three Jews and one Nazi. I, I uh, yeah, I, I, I identify with uh, Doctor Strange. Oh, okay, yeah. that's a, that's a good. That's the good. That's the that's a good like title for a movie. By the way, three Jews and a Nazi go to the moon yeah. or something like that. But w- what would be what would be your policy for the precious bodily fluids then? Uh, no, that that was the Gentile. I, exactly. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> he, he, he's just he was completely illogical. I I, I identify with with Doctor Strangelove's solution. Oh yeah, so he's he's more on the like the left side of the bell curve, <laughs> You're yeah, on the right side. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, going British. on with his yeah. his mystical stuff. No, I. I uh, I actually had one question here because we will be starting to round off now. Carl made a point earlier of am I am I recollecting this correctly? Like the a return of some kind of um, religious sent- sentiment was that what you were onto, Carl, or am I making this up? No, I just uh, my my point was this. Like basically, the world seems to, it seems to me that that the Western world has run until now on some sort of universalist principle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that used to be based on sort of a religious notion of 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 the value of 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 the individual and, and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. since that's been sort of debunked, it is now running. Seems to me on empty fumes and on a sort of presupposed scientific explanation 
that is being debunked uh, as we mm. speak. And hence mm. the sort of, that's the last, the last bastion of this sort of everyone's the same from a scientific or philosophical point of view is being refuted by research into, into, into IQ and intelligence. So my only like, my view is this consensus has to be reformulated somehow, or the fear I have is that, you know, we're heading for an even worse collapse or even worse crisis than we can ever imagine, since we need mm. some sort of glue in society, however you want to move forward with, with whatever vision you have. Okay, yeah, thank you. The, the obvious glue in the religious sense would be that we're all children of God, we have a soul and so on, and therefore inherently worthy of like respect or at least tolerance, yeah. regardless of the intelligence difference we discussed here. But given the unlikelihood of that God being unifying, because on the one hand, we live, it seems, I'm not sure if you agree with this, Nathan, but like in a very gnostic age where you can have gods of one, where in a way like everyone gets to have their own god. Perhaps this is something we can return to talking about, like, but trans would be one of these aspects where, where you get to be your own god, your own, uh, or goddess or, or your identity in a way is, is, um, is up for you to, de to uh, define and it also in a way becomes divine so we have the urge for the god and on a larger uh, scale i guess you could also bring in which we talked about on this podcast before political struggles taking on the role of god perhaps not the christian god but but ironically maybe the jewish vengeful god such as climate change or or social justice with regards to race but the reason why i think is relevant for someone come coming from your perspective nathan to formulate what would be the next course of action even though it's not a solution in in a whole sense um is that i think we might be running up against what max weber would call like the re-enchantment of the world and if you recall from his his sociological work he described the world as becoming de-enchanted uh, that is more bureaucratic, more secularized, boring, if you just use like Gentile parlance here. And this process of de-enchantment would go on for as long as there's coal to burn. That is, as long as you have the, the basis for an industrial order, that is fossil, fossil fuels, you will have this de-enchantment. Well, it so happens that this is something we're running out of in at least the, the cheap kind of fossil fuels. So it would only make sense then that, that the world would become re-enchanted that is becoming more magical. And in that case, whatever is left lying on the ground, such as the realization that there are differences on, on a racial basis between peoples, it's, it doesn't take a genius to realize that this will be picked up as a, as a new basis for, for your what makes life worth living, essentially, and how you organize your, well, networks, friends, spouses, whatever. So I think in, in one word, that Carl, you're right in, in that we are heading towards re-enchantment. But then the question is, where do you go from that based on the discussion we've, we've had so far on, on racial difference when it comes to intelligence? I don't know. <laughs> Crickets. Yeah, good question, Johan, as you could probably tell. Well, it's uh, off to the bunker then. We're all going to die. It's a sad day. We're, all, we're just Swedes and we can't build our own nuclear weapons. Like. No, I don't want this to be a, a negative point to end on. I think we there are things to, like, it's an exciting time ahead. But like... Uh, I'm sure everything will work out. We, we, we can end on that. No? <laughs> <laughs> can, can, we, can we have, in the end, like, 
you know the the, the ending song on on Strange Love. Let we'll meet again. again. Oh, no. <laughs> oh no! Well, Nathan, thank you ever so much. I had I had tons of fun, and Johan didn't get to talk about localism enough, so I think he's slightly uh, slightly. Oh yeah, mad. we should have like local replenishment. That's true. We should yeah. get it. Well, I I thought it went pretty smoothly. And nobody said anything too politically correct that needs to be edited out. So. Can you just put in all the bigoted phrases so we can edit them in? Koi, kike. Just go back and replace all. Can we do like a remix with you know Nathan just like Kofner's wave? Yeah, the world needs race. This. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that would be good for my career. But, <laughs> no, yeah. but you could be a DJ instead. That's true. But, but I mean, on that point, I mean, I think we are in a similar situation there that like, I, <laughs> this is me trying to become a <laughs> dissident Jew. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe this podcast... Are you, becoming, actually, a, are you yeah. becoming a Christian? Is that what you're saying? I'm, no, I'm f- feeling like this podcast is making me and Carl like uh, the actual Jews in, in an in- intellectual way. Like, <laughs> like in the Swedish uh, way? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. We're like... We're, 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 either we place ourselves on like the, the Spurg intelligent um, section on the right wing of, of the bell curve or we are the troglodytes or maybe there's a horseshoe intelligence where you like meet. A unification of the, of the Jews and the right wing Swedes. Uh, and like the right wing Kurds and the right wing Persians and then we have everybody I think on board that's sort of on the same Sounds team. like the master race. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we didn't get to the Persians, Johan. We talked about getting to the Persians a lot. We, we'll get to the Persian master race in some future episode. I mean, something tells me that this is not the last controversy Nathan Kofnes will be in. Mm-hmm.